Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thanks, Jamie. So before we go any further today, let me just reiterate the very big question that I want us to be thinking through this week and next. Here it is. Why did Jesus take on human form? That's the question. Why did he take on flesh and blood and and bones and skin and hair and and all those things that make us human? Why did he do that? Why did Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, come as the Son of Man? And the passage that Jamie just read to us, Jesus himself gives us the answer. I wonder if you saw it there. It's in verse 10. Have a look at it right at the end of the passage. This is what Jesus says. The Son of Man came, why? To seek and to save the lost. Why did Jesus, the Son of Man, why did he take on flesh and blood? Why did he take on a body, give or take like, like yours and like mine? Why did he do that? His answer, to seek and to save the lost. Now Luke 19, it's not really your traditional kind of Christmas passage, is it? There's, there's no angels and, and no shepherds and, and no, no wise men. But here we have in Jesus' own words, him telling us why he came to be amongst people, why he took on a fleshy body. It's so that he could seek and save the lost. And for me, over the last couple of weeks as I've been thinking about this passage, I think it's actually changed a bit about the way that I think of Christmas. This passage is changing how I see this season. See, the season of Christmas, it is about peace and hope and joy. But I want you to see that the reason why this season really is wonderful, as the song says, is that Christmas is all part of God's big mission to seek and save the lost. And the story of Zacchaeus that we looked at this morning, it's an example of of how that happens. In the rest of our time together this morning, I want us to look at two things together. You'll see those things on the outline in your leaflet. We're going to work our way through this passage, seeing Jesus, seeking and saving the lost. And then we're going to do some theology together. We're going to work out why a fleshy human body is a necessary part of God's mission to seek and to save the lost. And you can follow along in your outline if that's helpful for you. So let's have a look at this story about Zacchaeus, this well-known story. Jesus is on his way, he's on a journey, it's a one-way trip that he's making to Jerusalem and on the way he passes through a town called Jericho and there he meets Zacchaeus. Now there's something about this guy, Zacchaeus, that, that I find endearing. 
In my mind's eye, he's basically Danny DeVito running. I think there's a little video of that. Just have a look at this behind me. You know, he's running, a short guy. He's climbing a tree. It's ridiculous in a sense, isn't it? I think it's sort of supposed to be a bit comical, a bit like Danny DeVito running. And yet behind the comedy, there's, there's a deep reality here on view as well, isn't there? And that's that Zacchaeus is lost. And Luke helps us to see that Zacchaeus is lost by telling us about the life that Zacchaeus had been leading. He shows us that Zacchaeus is outside of God's family. I think we're supposed to think of that kind of lost sheep. Zacchaeus has wandered far. Now, how do we know this? How does Luke tell us that he's lost? Well, he tells us that he worked in taxation. Now, I know at least one person who works for the ATO. They go to the 11 a.m. service normally, and, and he is a terrific guy. If he's anything to go by, I'd like to say today that those who work in the taxation office are outstanding citizens today, right? But back when Luke wrote these words, that just wasn't the case. Tax collectors were despised and they were hated, not just because they were taxing Israel on behalf of Rome, but also because they were dishonest. They were essentially skimming money off the top. The more they skimmed off, the more wealthy they got. And as you notice in the passage that Zacchaeus is not just an ordinary tax collector, he's the chief tax collector, and Luke tells us he's wealthy. In other words, he'd done really well ripping others off. He's profited from others' misfortune. And so with just a few words, Luke sets Zacchaeus up as as someone who's living far from the way God intended. Now, I don't know for sure, but, but I imagine that led to Zacchaeus being excluded by others. He's on the outside, pushed away because of his sinfulness. And yet, even though we know that, I don't dislike Zacchaeus as a character. I wonder how you feel. Maybe it's because he's short and so I feel a sense of, I don't know, companionship with him. Or maybe it's because he's looking for Jesus, hard enough that he's willing to run and and hard enough that he's willing to climb a tree. Or maybe it's just that I can't get the image of Danny DeVito out of my head. I don't know what it is, but I kind of like Zacchaeus. And that's interesting, isn't it, that a likable character could be so lost. And yeah, that's real, isn't it? Perhaps you've got a friend a bit like Zacchaeus, a great person, the life of the party, everyone's friend, but still hopelessly lost when it comes to the things of God. Now, we're not told why Zacchaeus is so interested in seeing Jesus, but the presence of a crowd, I guess, suggests that Jesus' feats are becoming well known, his healing and his miracles and his teaching. Maybe Zacchaeus has has heard about this and And so he's drawn to Jesus. Let me read to you from from verse 3 of the passage. He, that's Zacchaeus, wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So despite his lofty place in the world as a wealthy tax collector, Zacchaeus seems to be drawn to this person of Jesus. And he's willing even to suffer the indignity of, of climbing a tree, Probably wearing a robe, mind you, climbing a tree to see Jesus. Now, I know this year that many of us have read Sam Chan's book on evangelism. Sam encourages us to tell stories about Jesus. 
Sam compares the church and Jesus and he says, the church is seen as oppressive because they impose their versions of salvation on us, but not Jesus, says Sam. He says that even today there's something magnetic about the person of Jesus. He's a sort of subversive, countercultural hero. Our culture likes Jesus, not the church. And so does Zacchaeus, doesn't he? He's drawn to the person of Jesus. Do you think Zacchaeus sees Jesus as a hero? Or does he know of him as a miracle worker? Or is he interested because he's got a reputation for healing? I wonder this morning how you see Jesus. Are you keen to get to know him better like Zacchaeus was? If you heard a rumour that Jesus was walking up Waddle Street, would you run out to catch a glimpse of him? Would you clamber over the fence or would you get out of your comfort zone, maybe even climb a tree to see Jesus? Are you captivated by him today as well? Zacchaeus knows there's something about Jesus and he wants to get close. Do you? Do you want to get closer to Jesus? The story tells us that Zacchaeus is lost. He's searching for Jesus. But look what happens in verse 5. Jesus finds Zacchaeus. Let me read to you from verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him in gladly. Just picture this with me for a sec. See, Jesus is, is walking through the town. There are crowds kind of lining the streets. And then when he gets to the, the base of the tree where Zacchaeus is, he stops and he, he looks up and sees Zacchaeus up there in the branches and he speaks to him and he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Now, did you notice that Jesus knows his name? It's easy to miss in this passage. We, we know this passage well. But it's there in the text, text isn't it? Jesus knows his name. He knows him. He's the one who's found Zacchaeus. Every time I read through this passage, I get this, this vision of a meme. You know, I don't, you know what a meme is? Those things that are on Facebook, right? Um, that kind of have a picture and then some words. And in my mind, I've got a picture of this meme, but in my mind I get a, a meme in my head about a, a picture of a hapless bloke sitting in a university cafeteria and he's, he's running through in his head a conversation he's just had with a pretty girl and he says... She knows my name. And that's the sort of thing that I think is happening here, right? But multiply that feeling by, by a hundredfold because it's Jesus who knows Zacchaeus. Jesus must care about him if he knows his name. And this is not just a pretty girl. This is Jesus, the one who's been healing and, and casting out demons and ushering in the kingdom of God. And, and people are flocking to him and the, the crowds are so packed that Zacchaeus has to climb a tree to see him, the author of life, the one who speaks and things come to being. Well, he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree and he calls to him by name. Isn't that amazing? And I think Luke is telling us here what Jesus is like. He knows us by name. He knows you. He knows me. We're not just kind of cosmic accidents. We're not just a bunch of atoms and, and molecules that have been squished together in a way that just happens to work. We're not a random chance in a never-ending universe. No, we're God's creation made by him. The Bible tells us we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And can you see here from this passage, we're known. 
Zacchaeus was hopelessly lost, trapped by his circumstances as a tax collector. He was excluded from Israel. And part of that was because of his own sinfulness and his greed. And yet when he went searching for Jesus, it was Jesus who found him. Zacchaeus needed saving and he's found by Jesus, the rescuer of the lost. You might wonder, does Zacchaeus deserve that? Does he deserve to be found? Does he deserve to be known? Well, the crowd looking on certainly don't think so. They grumble, don't they? But doesn't this just reinforce the reality? I think we know this already, that God saves those who deserve not to be saved. That he saves those who know they're lost. What a wonderful picture we're getting of Jesus. He is the one who saves the lost. And Jesus says this is why he came into the world. This is the reason why he took on flesh and blood in order to seek and save the lost. Born 2,000 years ago on that starry night in an outback town for this very reason. That he might seek out the lost Zacchaeus and countless others like him and save them. That's why Jesus took on flesh and blood. And that's what I think makes this story about Zacchaeus so great in the lead up to Christmas. Christmas happens so that Jesus might seek and save the lost. But as, as great as this story is about presenting what Jesus is like, it doesn't tell us how Jesus with a human body did the saving work. And to explore that question, we're going to have to do a little bit of theology together. And before you, before you fall asleep, let me say, please stick with me. I'm going to try and make this as exciting as we can. For those of you who are working through your outline, we're up to point two, so we're getting there. So stick with me as we do this little bit of theology together. Here's the question I want us to ask together. Why does a human body matter in God's mission to seek and save the lost? And we're going to look at three different Bible passages to answer that question. But before we do that, I want you to think about a bowl of apples. I've got a bowl of apples down the floor here. So here's our bowl of red apples. Just think about those for a second. I'm going to put them up there. And I also, while you're thinking about that, I want you to think about a bowl, not a bowl, a bunch of bananas, right? Just a show of hands. Who prefers apples over bananas? Who's for apples? And who would have a banana over an apple, right? It's about evenly split, okay? So let me just ask you a few other questions. We're going to explore which is actually the better fruit, okay? So which is, which is crunchier? Apples, right? Which is juicier? Apples. Which is rounder? Which is redder? It's apples all the way, isn't it? So that must make apples a better fruit, right? Until you chuck an apple into a blender with a cup of milk, and then it's a disaster, What I'm trying to illustrate is that type matters, okay? It's hard to compare things of different type. Hence the saying, you're not comparing apples with apples, right? Or oranges with oranges or bananas with bananas. In God's creation, type matters. And when it comes to dealing with the sin of humanity, the same is true. To deal with sin, to deal with the lostness of people like you and me, it must involve a human. Now you might say, well, hang on a sec. Back in the Old Testament times, didn't God instruct the people to deal with their sin by sacrificing an animal, a lamb or a goat? 
And it's true, God indeed did do that. The shedding of blood and the taking of the life of a, a goat or a lamb, it helped the people to see and to understand how much God hated or abhorred sin. And yet, here's the question, could the death of a goat, could it really atone, do away with the sin of a person? How is that just? They're not the same type. Our rule is apples for apples, oranges for oranges. So when it comes to humanity then, can we say the sin of a human for a goat? No. And the writer to the letter of Hebrews understood that principle. And so they say in chapter 10 verse 4, you've got that there in your, in your printout, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Because our rule is apples for apples, bananas for bananas. And when it comes to dealing with the lostness of humanity, when it comes to dealing with humanity's sin, the representative must match the type. It must be human. Apples for apples, bananas for bananas. A perfect human for sinful humanity. To use a a theological term here, at that first Christmas, by taking on flesh and blood, Jesus positions himself as the substitute for all humanity. He's a substitute. Now, we know what a substitute is when it comes to the sporting field. When a player's hurt or puffed out or something, they need to come off for one reason or another. Many of the sporting codes allow a substitute to go onto the field in their place. The substitute replaces that person, fills in for them. And in sport, it's obvious, right? But the substitute must be another person. So as much as a rugby team might want to swap out an injured Ford for a raging bull or an armoured truck that could just smash through the opposition, it has to be another human player, right? Type for type. The Apostle Peter picks up on this idea in his first letter. And there Peter wants to stress the idea that by taking on human form... Jesus could act as a legitimate substitute for people and in doing so he could bear the penalty that sinful humans deserve. You've got this verse printed out on your, in your leaflet as well. But this is what 1 Peter 2.24 says. He, that is Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. See, for Peter, Jesus bodily form means that he can legitimately bear the penalty for sin. Having a body means that Jesus can be physically wounded and hurt and and ultimately that he can be killed in just the same way that you or I could be. He has a body, he's made of, of flesh and bones and skin and therefore he can be hurt and he can bear the penalty for our sin. But as our substitute, Jesus does more than just take the penalty that we deserve. He also absorbs God's wrath and his anger towards sin. The Apostle Paul says that as our substitute, Jesus sits in the cursed place that we should be. And again, it's having a physical body that enables him to be the curse in our place. Last Bible passage I want you to consider this morning, Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. Here Paul's quoting from Deuteronomy. He's saying essentially that those who break the Old Testament law, they must face the curses associated with the Old Testament covenant. 
And by Jesus being hung on a pole or hung on a cross, he takes on that curse himself. In other words, when his physical body was hung on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the curse that belonged rightly to sinful humans. Absorbing on our behalf, as our substitute, God's righteous anger towards sin. I've been thinking about this all week. I think it makes sense. You can't nail a spirit to the cross, can you? You can't nail the word to the cross. No, for that to happen, it needs to be a physical, human, real body capable of being wounded, of feeling pain and of suffering. That's apples for apples, a a perfect human for sinful humanity. And this is how Jesus, by taking on human form, enables him to save Zacchaeus. This is how Jesus saves us. Here's how Timothy George, the theologian, puts it. It's up on the screen behind me. For this reason, the doctrine of atonement, that's what we've been thinking about, can never be merely a matter of cool theologizing or dispassionate discourse. Whoever thought theology was cool? Anyway, here's what he says. For us, for us, the Son of God became a curse. For us, he shed our He shed his precious blood. For us, he who from all eternity knew only the intimacy of the Father's bosom came to stand in that relation with God which normally is the result of sin, estranged from God and the object of his wrath. That's what Jesus did by taking on bodily form for Zacchaeus. That's what he's done for you and me. And I want you to see this morning, it's only possible because he came as a human. Only possible because he took on flesh and blood and could be our substitute, our representative, our curse. And that's what Jesus did that. At first Christmas, 2,000 years ago, he took on flesh and blood as our substitute to save us. And that makes Christmas the most wonderful time of the year for evangelism. I want to encourage you this year not to hide behind the baubles. What I mean by this is is don't let the season simply be about vague ideas of of cinnamon and mulled wine and tinsel and fairy lights and and all that kind of joy. Don't let the joy go to waste. Because isn't this a great time of the year to spend time speaking stories of Jesus to your friends? I think many of us will think of Easter as the festival for evangelism in the Christian calendar, right? Right? Well, this morning, I don't want you to discount Christmas as a great time for evangelism. Sure, it's a good time to enjoy the good things in life. It's also a great time of the year for evangelism. This year, you might have spent some time thinking about those around you and how you can invest in him. As a church, many of us have spent time making spring connections. Don't forget those people that you've connected with. This year as we get into Christmas. Maybe you've been to some of their things in the last couple of months. Maybe now's the time to invite them along to our carols night. Don't let the opportunity of this season pass you by. Perhaps today you already know these things about Jesus that we've been talking about. That he's your substitute, your curse paid the penalty for you maybe jesus has already found you and called you by name and given you a place in his family but maybe it's been a while since you were captivated by him 
Today we've seen a story about Zacchaeus running and climbing a tree simply to catch a glimpse of Jesus. This morning I wonder, are you still captivated by Jesus? Are you moved by what he's done for us as our substitute? He became like us at that first Christmas. He took on flesh and blood so that he could be hurt and wounded and killed and cursed for us. And if Jesus has done that for our sake, challenge you, are you willing to look a little bit foolish for him this season? Are you willing to do some things that make you a little bit uncomfortable to get a closer look of him? Are you willing to change your weekly routines to free up a little bit more time so that you can encourage others to take a look at Jesus? Are you willing to stand out at school or at work as a follower of Jesus? Would you climb a tree with your robes on to get a better view of him? Are you captivated by Jesus? And we can't finish this story of Zacchaeus without looking at the way that Zacchaeus repents from his previous life. In verse 8 of our passage, he says this, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. So having seen who, who Jesus is, the rescuer of the lost, Zacchaeus says his whole life is changed. At the start of the chapter, Luke tells us that, that Zacchaeus is a wealthy tax collector. Now his wealth, stolen as it was, is kind of his identity. He's wealthy, that's who he is. Here he is found by Jesus and that changes everything and Zacchaeus says that he'll give up everything. He's found by Jesus, given a new identity, he's called the son of Abraham. In other words, Zacchaeus has been made righteous, part of God's family. What I want you to remember this Christmas is that by being found by Jesus... By being saved by Jesus, it should change us. I get the feeling that after this event, Zacchaeus would no longer have been called wealthy. That's not his identity anymore, is it? Not if most of his wealth was from ill-gotten gain. Because he said he's going to pay back four times that. Perhaps this Christmas we need to make amends. It might not be to do with your wealth. Maybe you need to say sorry to some people around you. Maybe you need to come before God like Zacchaeus did. In repentance. We might not be sinful tax agents. I don't think there are many of us here who would fall into that category. But when we remember that at Christmas time, Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to bear our sins on the cross, surely that should drive us to repentance, asking for forgiveness because he hurt for us. Surely we should come before God in praise and thanksgiving. Christmas really is the most wonderful time of the year, isn't it? It's okay, I think, to celebrate with baubles and great food and fairy lights and friends and family, but don't let those crowd out for you the knowledge that at this time of the year, remember that Jesus took on flesh and blood so that he might save the lost. Let me pray for us. Father God, we give you great thanks for this little story about this man Zacchaeus who was so eager to see your son Jesus that he would climb a tree. We thank you for the way in which Jesus knew him and the way in which that led to a changed life for Zacchaeus. As we get into the Christmas season proper in the next few weeks, please help us to remember that you came 
in the person of Jesus in order to seek and save the lost. We would ask this in your son's powerful name, his saving name. Amen.